Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and hope you enjoy this edition of Bolin's Alley. You can find more about us at alleninvestments.com. And Robin, I hope you'll enjoy today. I've come up with a different topic for us to talk about today. So we're not doing AI, quantum, all of those. I would love to do more AI. We stand by. You know, I know there's there one will, coming. There I will know be we, more. Yeah, I'm very excited about that one. But today we're going back in time to past even the movie to when the book was written on The Wizard of Oz. Frank L. Baum. I'm my all-time favorite movie, The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. I love this. And I had no idea you were doing this. This is like a big surprise for well, me. Well, I have to do, you know, I can't tell you everything I'm always going to do. I guess. It, it does keep it really fresh. I have to share with you, I have a plaque over my door, my front door, as you were inside, not on the outside, that says there's no place like home. Oh. And oh, did I already steal some of the thunder? No, 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 not at all. Yeah, I'm not a big, big, huge. No, that's huge good. Fan. So I expect a lot of input today. Uh oh, okay. I would be worried if you had a plaque that said "Surrender, Dorothy." <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the one coming in. Yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> well, so you're probably aware then of all the allegories that have been written about what Lloyd Baum was really referring to when he wrote that book. I have read a little bit about that, yes. Now, he always denied it, by the way. He, he never admitted that any of his characters were based on political characters. I think that was, be, that was, that was the true politically incorrect time period, that you, things like that just were not you just, done. You just didn't do those things. Correct. So what I'm going to try to talk a little bit about today is, is a course I wrote 30 years ago for an honors class back when I was up in Iowa. And we're going to head down the yellow brick road today, okay? Which is, from the allegory, as doesn't take much imagination, was all about the gold standard that we had, that we don't have anymore, but yet still comes up in discussions on occasion in the economy. So what I'm going to insert along the way or ask you to think about as we do along the way is who would the characters from... Lloyd Baum's Wizard of Oz that he wrote about over a hundred years ago, who would those characters be today? Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Oh boy. So I'm going to make you think about... I'm going to have to put my red shoes on to be doing this. Well, you know, here's where I have to correct you. In the movie, they were red. Mm -hmm. But do you know why they were red in the movie? You know, I do not know why they were red in the movie. Because this was brand new for... All this wonderful color colorization. Oh, that's right, because the first part of the movie was black and white. And and her slippers in the book are not they're red. red. They're silver. Wow. I don't think I... You knew that too, uh, Yeah, Tim? silver slippers. That was the original... For the, the original silver, Baum wanted to go back to the silver standard in addition to gold. So she was wearing silver slippers. But they didn't want to keep them silver in the movie because they wanted to make a big deal about the new color of color movies. So they made him red. They should have kept him silver because, quite honestly, the lollipop kids were colorful enough. There was plenty of color. There was a lot of color. Yeah, lots of color. Yeah. So, but anyway, you know, he he always denied that any of these things we're going to talk about today were were his intent. They were. Um, but to get into a little history and not to be boring, but it was widely believed that this was about the rise of populism that was occurring in the 1890s. 
and this whole idea as to whether do you hold on to the gold standard for currency or do you begin using silver. So that was one of his original premises in writing the story, at least how people have interpreted his writing of this story. And where does the gold standard lead? To the Wizard of Oz. So now we're going to have characters for the Wizard of Oz. We're going to have characters for each of, you know, Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man, the Lion that Didn't Have a Heart. Those are all, those all came up. And it, and it makes not only a great story and a great movie, but I think for all of us to go back, and I would encourage you to, to read some of these different things if, if you want to go into more detail, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because there's so many, you know, and if you want to think about gold standard versus silver standard, what would you do or think about today? What do you think about, do we go to crypto? Cryptocurrencies, do we go to, you know, all of these other types of standards for exchange? Just another example of how everything in life is very cyclical. It is. Everything is cyclical. And if we go back to before 1873, and I'm going way back, I'm going back 150 years now, okay, a dollar could be exchanged for either gold or silver. You literally could exchange it for actual gold or silver. I know I have seen, and there's still a few floating around, yep. um, paper bills that said exchange for this amount of silver. Or yes. One dollar in $1 silver. One dollar in silver. Wow. And at this point, farmers really wanted to return to that policy because inflation was high. And because of that, it would make it easier for them to pay back their loans if they could have it on a silver standard or gold, as the case may be. So that was, Baum himself was a political reporter for part of his life, and he lived in South Dakota. So he was very familiar with what was going on in the Midwest. And having grown up in the Midwest, of course, at an early age, I had to read all about Lloyd Baum, which is why you're getting to hear about this today. Makes perfect sense. One of my, one of my great things that I found out about. So he saw the rise of populism amongst the farmers in the West, and he was writing about this in the 1870s, 1880s. Probably didn't write about it in the 70s, but, but, but he grew up and was aware of it, okay? And there was this formation of what was called the People's Party that was a very much populist, uh, sought to address a lot of the economic issues of the time, and from all indications— Baum was very sympathetic towards that. So when he wrote the book, in Baum's story, again, going based on what people think that what he was writing about, Dorothy's shoes are made of silver, not the ruby that you remember the movie. She was the symbol of the average American, is how we thought Dorothy was the, her slippers were a symbol of the American farmers' desire to have money tied to both silver and gold. Okay. Okay. The average American also needed silver, not just gold. Was the, was kind of the idea. And they were farmers were an advocate of this because, as again, they were trying to protect themselves from just gold. And by the end of the novel, Dorothy discovers it's her slippers that have the power to bring her home. Oh, that is, yeah, that does make sense. Right? Right. Similar to the belief that the return of silver would return prosperity to the economy. What an interesting way of sharing that. I mean, what? how, th- how, how clever. Thought- how thoughtful. Is yes. That? And so now I think today your silver shoes would be represented by Bitcoin 
and we would have transparent shoes with a Bitcoin symbol on them. <laughs> Which could be very interesting. Which could make for an interesting story. Certainly. <laughs> so anyway, each one of these main characters or places had allusions to what he saw, at least we think what he was seeing was wrong in the United States at that time. Emerald City, right? The Emerald City, Royal Palace of Oz. By the way, Oz is an abbreviation for something. What's an abbreviation for? O-Z. No, I don't let me take a shot. Please go for it because I, I don't think, I, I know I can't answer Well, that there's question. a pound and there's a... Ounce. I thought it was going to be ounce, but I didn't want it to. Because how was gold measured? In ounces. In ounces. The Wizard of Oz. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Was the ounce. And the Emerald City and the Royal Palace of Oz represented Washington, D.C. and the White House. That makes sense, too. Which I think makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the city, the Emerald City, symbolizes the greenback dollar. Mm -hmm. Oh, Tim has something. Yes, I know he does. <laughs> but I'm going to make him wait. Okay. I'm going to make him wait. We're not ready yet, Not Tim. ready. So anyway, you had all these bright green hues. The ounce was the abbreviation for the four ounce. And with Dorothy representing the average American arrives in the Emerald City, believing that's gonna, she's going to be able to solve all her problems and get back home. But guess what? The city was just an illusion. It only appeared to be green because its citizens were required to wear, in the book, green-tinted glasses at all times. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's almost scary, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that a little scary? So now it would probably just be the Fed. <laughs> so I think this is kind of a good place to take a little break, and we'll come back a little bit with today's version of The Wizard of Oz. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Bull and Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and we're taking a walk in history along the yellow brick road of the Wizard of Oz. We've already talked a little bit about some of the symbolism. And to, to really, the, the yellow brick road, obvious, at least I hope obviously, was the most transparent symbol in the entire novel, right? If you think about the gold standard and everything that was going on. And in the book... Baum wrote about the bricks in the road were very uneven and sometimes even broken or missing. And so he went into great detail about how having gold, the allergy, allegory that gold alone wasn't enough and it would crumble and it would, and it would make for uneven sharing. Well, it's softer. And it's softer. Gold is softer. Yeah. It's not. And so he, he would bring that in. And so Dorothy's silver shoes allowed her to walk safely on that path, again, suggesting things would be better if silver and gold were used together rather than just gold. And if you want to get philosophical, some people have said it acts as a path to enlightenment and freedom. I think that may get a little too deep. <laughs> that, go, that goes a little further yeah. out, I think, than we're prepared. Yeah, we're, we're reaching at that point. Okay. Okay, we're reaching at that point. But I would say that if we were writing that today, there wouldn't be one path. I think what I would do if I was writing it today is I would have multiple paths that you could pick from at any point in time, and they would all be a different cryptocurrency on each path. 
Okay. Well, don't keep it simple, whatever you no, do. No, no. Yeah. You've got to make it more complicated. Absolutely. Yes. And then there'd be a little dirt track leading to chicken trading and just you know, <laughs> yes. straight back to the barter I standard. like and... the barter system path. I think that's great. <laughs> and And then I would have to add a whole chapter that the way you would find which path to take ideally would involve artificial intelligence so you could use quantum computing to decide automatically which one would be the right path to take. I told you I'd get that in I there. I knew you were going to squeeze it in. I just didn't think it would be in the second set. Okay, good job. Check that box. Check that box. Okay, we're done with that one. So much for the yellow brick road. <laughs> uh, so anyway, notice also the Midwest was really sort of the where all of this populism, the farm communities, where it started. So it was logical that the book that Dorothy would come from Kansas. The heartland. The heartland, right? Mm-hmm. And so it served as sort of that epicenter. But they had a populist governor. Their U.S. senator was also populist. So, I mean, it really made sense. If he wanted to really let you know without telling you where he was going to have people come from, it would have been Kansas. Because that was, to my knowledge, that was the only state that had both a senator and a governor that were strong and that were populist by nature, as opposed to one of the other major parties. So in the 80s and the 90s, you you had this populist moment. Um, there was a populist orator, Mary Lease, and I can't remember much about her other than that, but she was known as the Kansas Cyclone. Really? Yes. And so now I'm taking that next leap and saying that when he had the cyclone that threw her out in the first part, it was a... It was a toss back to her as the Kansas cyclone in the populist movement. Now, I'm, I'm a little more on thin ice in my interpretation of that. At least I think I am. I haven't seen that widely discussed. But, you know, I, well, it I'm makes just perfect throwing, sense, doesn't it? I'm going to throw that out there. That I, makes perfect sense. I think it does. So, again, cyclones were really a, kind of a symbol for political upheaval this whole time around. It, it really was. So, let's now take a look at some of the the top metaphors that kind of exist out there from the Wizard of Oz. Let's start to dig in a little deeper. And this is where I want to see, now that I know your love of, of the Now book I and wish the movie, I wouldn't have said anything. Yeah, now Shoot. I'm going to pick on you now. Oh, great. So what do you think might, how do you see Dorothy, either through your reading in the book or from how she's portrayed in the movie? How would you describe Dorothy? Dorothy was was a faithful niece. Um, family was very important to her. Um, I think her priorities were intact. I think family and, and working together, she had a strong work ethic. She was taught to respect others, um, except Miss Gulch, because she yeah. was just evil. Yes. Um, and I would say there was a naivete about her that was... I don't. I always liked that she was open and she was awed, you know. Especially yes. once she got, you know, once the cyclone landed and she landed it, you know, on the on the road. So that that would be my description, I guess, of Dorothy. And I would throw in there that she was a bit of a dreamer. She saw more beyond just her simple farm life. She knew there was something more out there. She just didn't quite know how to get there. So, yeah, Oz was an opportunity. And then once she got into Oz, she realized, I just want to go home. (laughs) But you're right. Somewhere over the rainbow, I'm sure that's going to come up. 
but yeah, she did. She did have a greater vision. And and I it, the thing that I found interesting, and again, this is just allegedly. You don't know for sure what was it going on, but supposedly Dorothy was really influenced a lot from Lewis and Cl- Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. He really tried to write her as a sympathetic character, like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. I don't don't know that that certainly would be true, but but that would be where the curiosity part comes from. Yeah, in, in her personality, in her personality. I would see. But if you think about it, all of those traits resembled what was going on in the United States at that point in time, right? You, you had sort of that naivety and that dreamer, and you were coming through tough times. The Civil War had only been 10 years past when, when the populist movement started. Family was very important still. Family was extremely yeah. important. The Hard Industrial work. Revolution was starting to really it, ramp up. Exactly. So now everybody's worried about, you know, what's going to happen to jobs. And there was just so many of those things going on. Um, you would think it would be similar to like our robots and AI going to take away jobs today, right? Such a big conversation. Yeah, absolutely. But but you could write that story today with so many of these similar type allegories. And the thing that, that would be interesting on the journey would be how would you throw social media into the mix today? I have a suggestion. Flying monkeys. Oh, my perfect. gosh. That perfect. is perfect. Perfect. And or or the crab apple trees in the dark forest might be yeah, another. Yeah, there's just so many place. things that pop up in the Wizard of Oz that are there to to threaten, distract, to intimidate, to distract, to distract you distract. from your. Oh, it's even about better, distraction. Even better, even better. I the think poppy field. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's yes. all about those are the distractions. The distraction. Yeah. And and here's the other thing. <clears throat> and by the way, this is this is a personal opinion. So I just let you know before I say it that this is a personal opinion. But what I have observed over the last 10 or 15 years in social media, and I'm not sure how this comes across with how I'm going to say it with my voice, but 10 years ago, social media was social media. Today, because of what everybody does with filters and adjustments and perfecting, it's now social media. So now it's all about the media that you're trying to get attention to rather than the social part of just connecting with your friends. Kind of the, kind of the saying that the internet used to be fun. And so again, it's the distractions. Mm-hmm. So you, you could certainly have social media as, as some sort of allegory as you were talking about that. So I, I, again, the more things change, the characters change, but the plot's the same. You know, it's really interesting when we talk about Oz and we talk about Dorothy and um, and the trio arriving and they prepped them. You remember them going through their independent salons? Oh, yeah. yeah. For, they, they, for the visual of, it's of making sure you looked look good. good. Yeah, it's a, it was important to look good to meet the wizard. The wizard. You, yeah. had to, you had to be up to a certain standard to meet the wizard. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting thought. No, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Well, we've got, you know, we've got the yellow brick road now. We've described what might be social media. When we come back after the break, we're going to start looking at the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion and see what they may have represented then and what they may represent now. I hope you'll stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Bolin's Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, 
And I'm leading you right down the yellow brick road this week as we talk about. And, and I wanted to get in now to the three companions that Dorothy had. Okay. So let's start with the Tin Man. He, to me, was sort of an obvious one. He's the mistreated factory worker. Because as we mentioned, you know, Tim mentioned in the last segment. Industrial Industrial Revolution. revolution. Mm -hmm. And so the Tin Man, you know, was here. If you remember the, was it a woodsman? But you had the axe that was cursed by the Wicked Witch of the East Mm -hmm. to cut off his limbs to prevent him from marrying his true love, if I remember correctly. And so you sort of had this whole thing of, the Tin Man representing one of the most political subtones of that era, which was the dehumanization of the American factory workers as a result of the Industrial Revolution. So how would you not have that character in this type of a story? Because how do you fix that, right? How do you, particularly when, when he was writing in the 1890s, the final stages of industrialization and mechanization really were considered by many completely insufficient for what were what they were getting paid. Now, in today's world, nobody ever talks about not getting paid enough, right? That's never that's not an issue anymore. No. 120 years, that's completely been solved. We couldn't <laughs> possibly come up with an analogy today, could we? Pretty certain a bunch of uh, screenwriters in California would be disagreeing with us. That's right now. quite possible. <laughs> Are they striking though? <laughs> we don't have to hear from them. <laughs> so so what you had, you know, you had this soulless condition of the modern mass manufacturing, which when we look back really wasn't all that modern, was it? But at that time, when you're living it, that's what you thought. And so when when she first found the Tin Man, he was rusted. Mm-hmm. And supposedly that, that would apply to the high unemployment caused by the economic depression that we had in the 1890s. So... He was ready to work. He was able to work. And all he needed was a few drops of oil. oil. Oh, that's where oil comes in. Okay. Uh So we now have black gold in addition to gold gold. And so guess what? Today we have the Rust Belt in the Midwest because what happened to all the steel manufacturing that used to be in the United States, particularly going back into World War II and a little beyond? Laws changed and it became far more profitable to move all that overseas. And it all got sent to China and all over the Pacific Rim with reduced labor union power and participation. And the percentage of manufacturing in the United States has dropped by 50% of how much shows in the manufacturing sector versus that. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So I would argue somebody out there ought to be writing the updated version from an ethical, moral standpoint, talk about some of these issues uh, and and try to bring solutions rather than just problems. But there are problems that, that we can address, right? So the pendulum's gone back and forth. And so the Tin Man, we would still, my point is, the story today would still have a point, place for the Tin Man. I mean, industry being heartless and all was has to be a, a big part of that. That has, not, has never changed. Yeah, that, no. that perception, right? But that perception does, you're right, still exists. Still exists. I don't exists. think it has gone away. So who is the scarecrow? Another easy one. It has to be representing the Midwest, the, farm, Absolutely. the farmer. Absolutely, the Midwestern farmer, right? The simple man. And the troubles facing them. Mm-hmm. And convinced he doesn't have a brain. He wasn't smart enough to solve any of the problems. No. No. He was just a farmer. Because where does the farmer live? In flyover territory today. 
right? The brains are on the East Coast and the West Coast. Nobody in the Midwest has a brain, right? Hmm. Boy, that's... Yeah, just the, the whistle-stop towns. You're just, in there just yeah. long enough for the for the train to reload and move you onward. Yeah, and, and so they are typically still to this day mocked by those that feel they're superior, right? So again, hasn't really changed in a lot of ways. Wow. Hasn't really changed. So what does the scarecrow want? Wants to be smart, like everybody else. But turns out maybe that scarecrow is actually smarter than those <laughs> that think they're smarter when you, when you get down to it. Anyway, though, turns out, interestingly enough, and I don't remember if this was in the movie, but by the end of the novel, the scarecrow has been declared the wisest man in all of Oz. He was. He was. He was given a. Um, he was given. He was given a diploma. diploma that's exactly. Right, basically, a, basically a piece of paper that says you're smart. And in the novel, became the interim ruler of the Emerald City. That it, he was, they were actually right. set to, the three were to rule together right. in the movie. In the movie. Mm-hmm. Which there has to be some analogy to that. I mean, it's got to be there. Well, was, yeah, yeah. If, if you look at the core three, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Bowen will come around to this one in a moment, they had all three of the elements you needed for a successful. Unified. Government. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. So anyway, we've got we've got the scarecrow, you know was was sort of the dumb hicks of the Midwest. Typical supporters of the populist politics. They're not really simpletons, it turns out, but were rather insightful and quick-witted. And they actually had brains after all. I know what a novel thought that that, that would actually be the case. So as I said, this basically would today would be, you know, if you're in a flyover state, you're not really worth listening to. They've got a, another name that I won't mention that somebody in the past has probably come up with them, but I'm going to I'm going to not we'll let that lie. We're just going to let that one lie. Let's let's go to the cowardly lion, all right? Since I'm coward to to jump into too much on the left or right cuz <laughs> you know, then 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 half the people quit listening to you at that point. So The other half will be mad too. <laughs> the other half will be mad cuz you didn't say enough about it. So you can't win. You can't win. You can't win. So <laughs> the cowardly lion, at least they believed, represented the populist politician William Jennings Bryan. That was that was who, who supposedly, he was sort of trying to, uh, to encourage Jennings Bryan to speak up more. That he, he thought he was too timid, too timid. Mm-hmm. That he was really too timid. If you think about Bryan was depicted as a lion by the political press of his day due to his tendency to elicit a roar of assembled crowds. I mean that was sort of it was, but. He couldn't win over the populace. He never was able to actually get nominated to run as the candidate for the major political party that he represented. Uh, it was actually one instead by, if you want to know history, it was William McKinley ended up actually getting the, the nominations. And most of it was because of the block of votes against Bryan by the East, Eastern industrial workers when it, when it went through all the nominating processes back then. So when... When the defeat was re- was kind of reflected in the novel where the cowardly lion couldn't make any impression by clawing the tin man. He couldn't make any impression on the industrial eastern. So, there again, there were so many symbolisms oh my gosh, between the these fight. characters yeah. and, the, and the fight that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't even want to think about who you would – who you would – 
put out there in, in today's, but I, I think we could all come up with characters that could serve as sacrificial lambs that weren't successful running for either political party along the way. That yeah, might have had great and, concepts and and had the right idea. And had really good ideas for what would have solved, but somehow... There have been lots and lots and lots. Of, way too many. Way too many, right? So, but it, my point is, is that while this story was written about what was happening around 1900, there's none of these issues have gone away. None of these issues have gone away. And yet there are still some very common denominators. Yes. Hmm. The Wicked Witches are, are, are a tougher one, I think. I think that's, it gets a little, uh, it's easy to see who they were for. They were about all the powerful interests in American politics. At least that was, that's the consensus of people that have written about this. Um, they serve sort of as that they condemn the power and influence of their threat to, to political life. The Wicked Witch of the East is the industrial and banking interest of the East Coast. Obviously, in Baum's populist writing, those are going to be evil people, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what you see happening then as the character who stole the Tin Man's heart symbolizes the deteriorating conditions that was happening in the industrial labors, who's she killed by? Falling House. Veiled reference to Wall Street and financial greed. <laughs> wow, that's powerful. That's very powerful. And, and so it's offering assistance to her subjects only at a high cost, which was the East Coast banking institutions at the time. Not that that ever happens today, or at least anybody would ever think that would happen today. So we've got, we've got all of the uh, kind of the main characters out there that we've discussed. Um, we we've, haven't really talked too much about the wizard yet, but I think when we come back from break – and we get into our last segment. Let's talk a little bit about the character who was actually the Wizard of Oz and see where that leads us. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Boland's Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Boland. We've been going down quite the path of the yellow brick road today. And we've, you know, we've now made it. We're, we're on the, the doorstep of the Emerald City the Wicked Witch of the West has been throwing everything at us that she possibly could the think poppies. of. The poppies. You name it. Poppies. The, the monkeys. The monkeys. The, what do you think that <laughs> would mean? So I, we were talking a little bit off air, and I I like the Wicked Witch of the West to some degree, but um, I think she represents the media as a whole, I think her flying monkeys, based on, Tim, what you were talking about, is one of the disruptions tied to social media. There's such a stronghold and there. And they're flying monkeys. They can spread that information far and wide very quickly. Right. I just think there's some kind of a connection there. That, that makes really solid sense to me. No, I, I like I actually really like that analogy. And, and I think the other thing about the media is the downplaying of the flyover, right? right, of the flyover areas. There is nothing here um, from a media perspective that we're really interested in. And I think that's represented in the movie where she tries to burn him with with her uh, broom, and uh, where he's she's going after 
middle America. And if you remember, this wasn't in the movie, but in the novel, the witch actually had three animals that she that she threw at the that at the group: bees to sting and annoy, wolves, and then the flying monkeys. And then the flying monkeys. So she was going all out, trying to do everything she could to derail this project, stop them from getting to the Emerald City. That's really very cool. But I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Would represent the media and everything as far as the disruptor, the social media, the platform that's out there now, because particularly because of when you think about what the internet has allowed to happen. Well, I think the silencing of some messaging. Yes, I, mean, I think you know all. You of do those. everything you can mm-hmm. to to disrupt and and get the voice that they that. The narrative. The narrative. Right. It's the narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the wizard? So the Tim is smiling right now. (laughs) Tim has a theory on the wizard, Um, and I think Tim. I mean, I I look at the wizard as two different personalities, and I think for me, um, even though there was before the she hit her head right and had the dream. Um, and the afterward, I think the wizard is the two extremes where the three characters, the three farm workers, were very on point. So I don't, I don't know that I can connect the rest of that dot. Well, that's all right. You're, you're... Well, talking uh, about Dorothy is a bit of a dreamer. She meets the wizard at a wagon on the side of the road after she's run away from home, and he kind of seems to represent the open road, the chance to get away and get out and and go and and experience chase those dreams right and and he was from nebraska another midwest another midwest which was state. far far away at that point yes <laughs> and he was heading west and was heading west wait the hot air balloon was the one that accidentally mm-hmm. took him there right well he was heading west uh when they met on the side of the road yes. as well probably chasing his own dream dreams yeah mm-hmm. yeah so if you think about um, who that – there, there's so many individuals that you could put into the shoes of Oz today. The professor or Oz because exactly. to me, that, that – the duality. Exactly. I mean, I think that there was just something very different about Oz – until the end, we saw he really he kind of came out. He he started off as kind of a simple dreamer, turned into a bit of a big overblown. Uh, saw a bigger picture. He fit, they fit, elevated you know, him. They elevated him based on well, what is basically just an awful lot of really fancy talk, and then you find out at the end he's not that bad. He just was way in over his head. <laughs> That's really, that, you know something? I think that's very accurate, too. He was over his head because he was a simple man, and he wanted to go back to, he wanted to, he-, he was heading towards Nebraska. He could take Dorothy with him. Yes. To Kansas. To Kansas. Because he was a Midwesterner. He realized that things had gotten too complicated. He just wanted to, he just wanted to go back to where things were simple. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I I can't talk about any movie, particularly in today's movie world, on whatever always 
seems to be a great thing to make any good movie, and that's you've got to have a dog in it. Totally. Right? Totally. you got to have a dog. Mm-hmm. Who was Toto? Toto was actually about the smartest one of the group, really. <laughs> well, Toto was very more, more good often, at... More often than not, Toto knew what was going on. Yeah, <laughs> well, he knew good character... Versus yeah, he bad. Could t- he poor- could tell who the good people were. He could yeah. tell who the bad people were. Whenever they got a little bit lost, Toto was usually out there going, "Hey, gang, it's this way over here." Yeah, he was way. also very loyal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was definitely very loyal. Level-headed. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, Toto never spoke. Right, the dog did. I believe later in the series, Toto actually was given way down in was the, the was novels, given yeah. the ability. To speak, but then chose not to. <laughs> there's, I lot, there's something about that, too. <laughs> well, after adventuring through Oz for a while, it's like, nope, nope, this ain't happening. Nope. Well, the most common representation at the time was that Toto represented the prohibitionist movement in the United States. Kind of that sane, sober, steady. Mm. Now, I'm not, I, I have no idea if that... That one, to me, seems a bit more of a stretch than some of the others. I don't, you know, I don't know if it does. You know, when you talk about the loyalty of your fur person, a dog to a human being, and you talk about kind of that relationship, too, I think you could maybe make that case. Okay. I think there... Toto was the one thing, was actually kind of the part of the driver of the plot, because Toto, at least in the movie, Toto was taken away by Miss Gulch. Mm-hmm. We all agree Miss Gulch was a terrible person. Yes. And then Dorothy basically was doing what she could to fix that, to get Toto back. And that kind of spun the whole thing, literally spun the whole thing off to Oz. Yeah. And I guess I I guess the other thing, if you want to talk about prohibitionist movement, Toto might be short for a teetotaler, which is somebody that doesn't, right? Again, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes some sense there. I mm. guess, I guess, I could see that. I think you can connect the dots. I think we can connect the dots. What would, what would the dog's name be today? I'd have to go for just one of the basic, one of the basic Fido. I boy. don't know. <laughs> I got no. I got no real idea I on that one. Boy, so if he represented, well, we, there's this. I mean, do we want to go down that? I don't know. I don't well, know. We want to go down that path. Okay. All right. I don't know. I don't know what the. I don't know what the. If you follow the storyline for analogies today, there's really a couple of different ways you could go at this point with the dog, right? You know, still a faithful companion, mm-hmm. um, but you, you know you're not going to have it as a prohibitionist movement anymore. No, but there are so many movements now. That's what I mean. How do it's you just, how do you pick yeah. one, right? I is it the I don't is it the greater reality of self-discovery? I mean, I don't know if I could tie uh, Toto to that. Uh, but I think I think we're going through such a metamorphosis. What Toto had to go through to get back to Dorothy was quite a journey. And so I'm wondering if all of the movements that we're going through. They, is, they kind of all combine together into Toto. We're looking for a, a nice, simple package, you know, shaped like a small terrier. Right. It's simple. We it's wish easy it was to understand. simple. Right. Yeah. We're, we're looking I, but, for just a simple answer. Yeah. But, 
That's right. We're trying to come back to ourselves to just get back to simplicity, maybe. I no, I like that. I like that. So, yeah, I, th- I think we could go there. I-, I think each one of these characters, at least I hope today as you think about some of these things, that I it's so important, and again, it's my opinion, but it's so important to think about and learn about historical perspectives. And And a lot of the stories were written targeted sort of whether it's fantasy or youth or whatever to get people to read it so they would actually stop and think about these sort of things an interesting way to introduce what's going on in a in a great telling a story yes yes and i think i think the journey that dorothy went on and the tin man and the scarecrow and the lion all right it's the journey. It's the journey we all have to go through, and we need to do it in community as a group, right, to navigate these complex and often treacherous terrain of modern social issues. Those things have not changed, and they're probably not going to change, at least not anytime soon. So I think as we wrap up, I hope you've enjoyed this little journey that we've taken down this the was, Yellow Brick Road today. This was really fascinating. Yeah. I, we didn't even get into Glinda. I know. I, and I don't I even really... know. I mean, that's kind of maybe a sad commentary, too. I, she represented hope and believing she in did. yourself. She did. And I don't know if she was the inner us. Maybe that's who Glinda Ooh, represented. I like that. Maybe she was our common sense and our intuitive. Maybe that's who I, I, I kind of like that. I like, let's let's leave with a good note on Glenda. Okay. I think that's good. Well, thank you for joining us today. And if you would like to see more like this podcast, go down, check out Boland's Alley at alleninvestments.com. Have a great day. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida, LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial, LLC, LPL, Registered Investment Advisors. Securities offered through LPL, member FINRA, SIPC.